We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button or listen to old archive shows as well. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you. Morning, Scott. Morning, Scott. And you brought a guest with you. We did. We did. It, uh, we brought. How did you get a guest up so early in the morning <laughs> on a weekend? No kidding. Well, I was fortunate enough to bring a, a, a long-term uh, friend and uh, my personal doctor for years. And oh, uh, really? Yes. Well, maybe I should ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah. And maybe have listeners call in. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm find out more about the, me. Send in the row hip numbers. <laughs> <too>, eh? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Check everyone out. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, you, know, you go back and, you know, we all have, we, we've talked about financial planning now for 14 years, Andy and I, mm-hmm. and been in this business for over 30 years each. And one of the things that we talk about a lot about is would be taxes. Right. And estate planning. Mm-hmm. And you can't avoid, uh, death and taxes is yeah. kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, when exactly did you retire, Graham? Well, I, I didn't retire. I refocused. I changed. Ah, from I love that. Yeah. Refocused. Well, I, I changed from the uh, full cradle to grave care to just looking at uh, palliative care and doing a bit of research. And that led to this uh, book called Moments Near Life's End. That's correct. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you, in 2014, you stopped being a, my doctor, and I had to find another one after that, which is not the easiest thing in Ontario no. these days. I miss you, Graham. Yeah, clearly, Graham, he's still bitter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And you did a lot of work over and above what I would say a normal doc would. You, uh, you, of course, you, did, you looked after patients like myself, but you also did some work at McMaster. Yes, uh, we trained uh, family practice residents for 20 years, and I was on various committees organizing uh, lectures, organizing meetings, um, did a bit of research, uh, maybe 10 papers published. And uh, uh, so it was a very interesting, one of the nice things about family medicine is you can do all these different things and you're mm. not sort of just in an operating room uh, doing surgery, it's you're dealing with people. Yeah. Well, you did a pretty good job from what I see, because you got in 2007, you got a bit of an award for that. It was a uh, doctor of the year. Wow. For in Ontario. For Ontario, yeah. Wow, yeah. so oh, just yeah. Ontario. That's nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you have to know the right people to get that. <laughs> <laughs> have them write the, the right letters, you know. It's <laughs> so that's who you know. Well, no, I, I, very humble. He's always been very humble. But what actually got you interested in the palliative care side of things? Well, I've always had an interest in, in palliative care, but when I refocused, I had more time to get into the... Uh, spend the time looking after uh, palliative patients. I was uh, picking up the orphan patients. That's patients who didn't have a family Mm. doctor who worked Mm. in palliative care. A lot of family doctors do, but there are some who they're out of town. They they feel that doing work in the office is uh, more demanding of their time. And as a result, some patients are left without a family doctor who's willing to either make a house call or see them in the palliative care units at the hospice. And so I filled that niche and that's how I got into into it. Very good. And, and one thing I always did like about 
you know, dealing with you. And again, I'm not a big doctor fan of yours. It means you're sick to have to go to see a doctor <laughs> other than a checkup. So we didn't see each other too often then. However, you always seem to have a lot of time for me. And I, I'm assuming that that kind of, you know, the attribute that you have would be fantastic for palliative care. I think that uh, my view of family practice is that it's people. Mm. And you have health issues, you have uh, counseling issues, but it's not you're a diabetic and therefore I have to look at it. you're a case of diabetes or you're a case of heart disease. You're a person. And how do you handle health? Do you have questions? And so, yes, you've got time to listen to people. Yeah, and that, you know, I can't tell you how, you know, we, I appreciate it. I'm sure you're... Your other patients appreciated it. But, you know, going from one extreme of, uh, you know, doing this, what really got you interested in palliative care was simply the love of working with people? Uh, the interesting stories that people have at the end of their life. They, you look back and you see what you've accomplished, what you've done, and wow, it's amazing. People who you think have nothing to say, and all of a sudden you find out, that they have done fascinating things through their years, traveled, have a big family, have given to charities, whatever it is they've done. But even just your, un, I won't, don't want to call them an everyday Joe or your, uh, your normal people, mm -hmm. they're, all their stories are fascinating. Yeah, they may not make, sorry, go ahead. Can Scott. I just ask a quick question? Um, do you, with all of these people that you've dealt with over time since retiring, do you see a common denominator in all of them? Are they? They're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you can't change that. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, beyond that. <laughs> um, like, you no, talked I, about them telling stories and all of a sudden opening up. Like, is this something that you've seen that's common? If you're willing to listen to the people yeah. and spend some time with them, then they... They love to talk about who they are and yeah. what's going on. Hmm. There was only one uh, lady, I didn't uh, include her in the book, but she had made her peace with God and didn't want to talk about her life. And that was... That was it. That was it, yeah. Hmm. So my approach didn't... Uh, being open and asking people to, well, tell me about who you are or who your mother is, it didn't work with her. Do you think they say more to you than they might family members or different things they might confide in you and say things that they probably don't have or discussions they don't have with family members? Uh, I'm not sure we really want to go there and find out what they wouldn't <laughs> say to yeah. their family members. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, yeah I think yeah. you probably have a, a mm -hmm. point that the people are, are uh, all of a sudden they see the end coming and they have to justify or... Uh, perhaps that's not a right word, but they have to, this is what my life was about. Mm. And I have to look and see, was it worthwhile? I mean, we all want to be, yeah, you're a great, you were a great dad. I love you. And you're a great child and I love you. We all want to hear that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. Was, do you think there's one common regret people have at the end of the day? Um, no, I think they're all very, very different. Um, I think you guys do a big job in helping the financial part of, of care because you get to the end of your life and you want to make sure you've got enough things sorted away to uh, um, be able to, uh, to die and think your family's still looked after. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a, a big one for a lot of people. But uh, there's one story in the book about a gentleman whose one daughter he hadn't seen in years and he swore to me up and down she'd been in to visit but she hadn't. Hmm. So he made a reconciliation with her, but in his mind. Hmm. And that was wow. such a beautiful little story wow. to me that he could hmm. make that reconciliation. And I wow. That was... That never really happened, but he did it in, 
almost imaginary. Yeah. Well, for him, it for was, him, it was real. For him it was real. It was, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so there's that reconciliation that we all, I think, we should strive for because you know, if you don't tell somebody while they're still alive, I, I'm sorry we had this rough time. Mm. You end up having more rough times. You know, the, I went mm. to a funeral home one day and I, I spoke to a lady, the, the grief counselor, and she said, we have to have the police here often to keep families apart because there's wow. so much friction between yeah. the one son and the other son. or the And, uh, and this just brings it all, to, just heightens it all. Yeah, yeah. The, the death does. And so it's really worthwhile in that time if you can... Uh, breach those those def- abysses, cover them, um, work out the details of what went wrong. It it makes so much more sense for a family. Why does that sound much easier than what it is? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of anger. There's a story in the book about a, 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 a 90-year-old man with dementia who was dying. His organs were falling apart. And the one son said, let's let him go. And the other son said, oh, no, no, we've got to give him antibiotics, we've got to give him tube feeding. Yeah. And so the sons don't talk to each other anymore. There is a big, hmm. big hmm. rift between them. And that, I mean, to me, my family is important. And, and uh, making sure we all talk to each other is very important and care for each other. Because what have you got in life other than your family and, and your close friends? Good um, point. Well, at the end of the day, it's interesting. We talk about wills all the time, Andy and I on the show. We also talk about power of attorneys, um, not only for your investments, but for personal care. And uh, you would probably see, we actually never see them being used. We, we, we tell them to see their lawyer, we check that they've done it, but we've never actually seen them in action. Do they work? Well, I think it's really important that your family understands your wishes because the one son in this case I just talked about hadn't spoken to the father to say, when he was able to speak to them because he was now demented, but hadn't been able to say, if I'm demented, let me go. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think mm-hmm. none of us would really want to be held yeah. on because life is so precious. Yeah. Let nature take its course. Let us go. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, the title of the book, Moments Near, Near Life's End. And uh, it's interesting. I, I found it just a great way of putting it as opposed to, of course, you know, death is life's end, but it really, where everybody's going to die. And so we got this expiry date, and that's when it is, it is. But mm-hmm. it's, it really is moment ne- moments near, near life's end. And it's funny. Everybody does. They don't have to win a Super Bowl or, or you know, be the Tiger Woods in golf or whatever. They all have their stories. Yeah. And it's interesting. It, it may be a very big, very important for them. And it's great that you're able to get those stories out. And that's what you've done in this book. Yes. But what is one thing to talk about books? I think we, everybody I've talked to says, you know what, you should write a book about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's great stuff. If I could write a book about this someday, I know very few people actually went out and did it. What inspired you to, to say, okay, I'm going to go write a book? Well, I've, I've journaled for years. And so every night when you go to bed, you sort of look, reflect on the day and you make a few notes. And sometimes it's very uh, personal. Sometimes it's just, I went biking today, went to the pool, whatever. But then I took a course on mindfulness, and they encouraged journaling there. And I took a couple of courses at the Halliburton School of Art and Design and with Nora Zilstra Savage, and she's a very stimulating lady. And <coughs> when you shared some of the stories you wrote with the group that's there, they all said, oh, that's great. They had tears, they had laughter, and they said, this is very important stuff. Write it, hmm. make a book. Mm. And so I decided, oh, okay, we'll make a book. 
And then uh, Nora suggested that my wife and I combine our skills. She's an artist, that she could paint the pictures and I could write the, uh, the stories. And together we would uh, um, put the book together. Yes, it's great that you combine... Uh you know, Lydia's quite the artist. She was at one time, that's uh, Graham's wife here, and she was uh, a school teacher and a principal, and but ext- extremely artistic. And so she's done all these uh, very beautiful butterflies inside this book and kind of match the essence of that chapter too, which is interesting. But, um, you know, how do you think this book's going to help people? Well, so far, people have given me feedback, and one gentleman said, um, I... It's nice to know that there is people to help me through that journey when I get there. Mm. Uh, someone said, well, this is for curriculum. You need to uh, make this something that the medical students should all read. I've had other people say, I now understand why they didn't want to give any more treatment to my father-in-law. And uh, so those are some of the feedbacks that I've had. There's lots of others. One of my colleagues said if he'd had this book when he was in practice, he was now retired, not refocused, that he would have used it uh, for a lot of people. Hmm. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., along with Graham Swanson, MD, and the book is Moments Near Life's End. We're going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com andyanddon.com. And join today with uh, Dr. Graham Swanson, MD. The book is Moments Near Life's End. It's hard to say goodbye. Uh, fascinating topic. We're going to talk about uh, power of attorney here. Graham, I know in, in, in our world, uh, when Don and I are dealing with clients and talking about power of attorney for their finances and power of attorney for their personal care, one of the things that I've seen hap- or occurs often in those documents or as people are contemplating the document is uh, is someone actually uh, their competency to either create the document or in some cases the power of attorney is only springs into action if somebody is deemed incompetent and I'm just curious is, is that problematic and and I've I'm often thought about that discussion with clients saying I'm not sure that that's a good solution because when it comes time to test your competency it, it's it can be very emotional, but it can also be, um, maybe it's, it's not that, how accurate can it be? I guess that's the concern. That's a really good question because it's, I remember uh, a lady brought her mother in for a physical and I did the complete <coughs> physical exam and I said, oh, your mom's great. And the li- lady's jaw dropped and said, she doesn't understand anything because I hadn't mm-hmm. asked her the specific questions about what day is it. Um, right. Because people, a lot of people in early dementia can confabulate stories and they sound like they're very with it and you can talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do have to have a, a set of questions. The mini mental status uh, questionnaire is one. Uh, the Montreal uh, Cognitive Index is another. And the most recent studies are suggesting that even those things are not perfect and that getting an idea of how competent somebody is. There is an office of the competency that will will help you if you're really concerned about the the competence of a of a, a patient. But it, it, you're right; it's a very difficult dish, issue to decide. Um, I see uh, 
Some people make decisions in their life, and I'm wondering, are they competent? But they manage to function. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. And I guess that was always the, uh, that's the, the concern if you have people in a family maybe conflicted over the decision process, one saying they're competent and one saying they're not competent, and, and now yeah. you end up in a, in a bit of a battle. Yeah, we, we see that when there's a, a family member out of town who talks to a mom on the phone on the weekend and they have a great conversation, but the family member who's in town looking after her knows she gets lost when she opens the front door. Mm-hmm. That she can't plug in the kettle. She can't do anything else, but she can carry on a great conversation. So the family member from out of town is saying, you can't put mom in a nursing home. She's doing fine. Yes. And the person who's here 24 hours a day can't... Uh, uh, handle it. So it's really a very difficult situation. Yeah, but it seems to me the power of attorney for personal care is a is obviously an important document because it gives somebody opportunity to sort of spell out their their wishes and maybe make that clear to everybody. Um, and yet, you know, I, I was looking at statistics how many you know as people are dying in hospitals, the cost associated with dying in the hospital versus dying in a hospice is dramatically different and is there has there been is there a big shift happening to people dying more likely in a hospice than the hospital or what's what's that situation now in Ontario well the uh, people are dying at home they're dying at the hospital they're dying at the uh, in in hospices and hospices uh, the carpenter for example in Burlington has 10 beds and they're often full right. so you can't put any more people in there because there's no room um, but the uh, Hall, uh, Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Brandt, Lynn mm-hmm. has a really uh, good web page that talks about all the different hospices avail- that are available and how you get hold of the community care access people. And we'll provide a lot of advice to people on, on how they can access care and uh, um and it's and it seems like our healthcare, you know, the the costs in healthcare are constantly under pressure. And and you know whether it's more money from the government or more fundraising, is is hospice a, a better alternative? Is it a is it a more economical alternative? Uh, hospice is covered by the government, and they do their own fundraising to uh, complete the uh, the staffing complement. They also have a large voluntary uh, staff that works there and uh, people will donate food. So the, the kitchen that's there is always full with all kinds of good goodies and all people right. coming in and volunteering several days a week to cook stuff. And it's always a treat to go to the hospice because you know you're going to get a good snack. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's, it seems like it's a bit of a challenge for, for those nearing end-of-life decisions trying to actually find a placement. Yeah, I think if you end up in the hospital because that you went to the emergency and they des- decide, well, you're now palliative and you're going to die within the next few weeks. Uh, moving somebody from the emergency to the hospice uh, may not be a good idea because it's a rough ride in a transport vehicle. Mm-hmm. Maybe the hospice is full. Uh, so it's got to be a personal decision made at that time. Um, I think if I was uh, on that doorstep, uh, I'd for sure pick a hospice because they are wonderful people there, the wonderful people at the hospital, they're wonderful people in the community, um, but there's someone there 24 hours a day at the hospice who's really knowledgeable and very uh, uh, compassionate who will help get you through this last stage. And that's that's interesting about the, the cost because, to be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about this side of things, and I didn't know the cost. I actually assumed with the hospice 
there was a fee, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a senior center or a nursing home, <laughs> if you will. I thought there was a cost for this, and it is funded by the government, which is great. Um, there's also the one in, in downtown uh, Hamilton, St. Peter's, I believe it is. Yeah, St. Peter's is a hospital. The The hospices we have, there's the Ni- Hospice Niagara in St. Catharines, McNally House in Grimsby, Stedman Hospice in Brantford, Carpenter in Burlington, and Emanuel House in Hamilton. So those are the, but each of them, no one has more than 10 beds. And so that's one of the problems with a hospice is if you've got someone who's going to be there for six months, you've only got right 20 people in, in a year could use the services. Yeah. So the hospice has a uh, commitment to try and only accept people they think are going to die in the next 90 days. Mm. Um, most people don't last that long, but occasionally you get someone who is there for six months and you ask them to move on to some other kind of uh, accommodation. And actually, one of your stories in the book, which I thought was uh, funny, to be honest, was the miracle. One of them uh, got better. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask you, you were <laughs> just saying someone that's been there for a month and then they've moved on. I mean, that, that was supposed to be the final stage. What happens then? That's, then we I got, guess that's a good thing. Well, well it is, and it isn't. Um, this one, the miracle that Don is talking about, was a gentleman who had congestive heart failure. And the, con- the trajectory for congestive heart failure is up and down. That you're there, you're on death's door, and the right medications and the balance and the care the nurses are giving turn you around. Well, this guy managed to uh, get out, and about a year and a half later, he finally died. But he managed to trip down to Nova Scotia for the Battle of Britain ceremony because he was a war vet. And he <laughs> had a phenomenally good time. And one of the workers from the hospice accompanied him down there. Wow. wow. Great story. <clears throat> well, that's great. And again, you know, you got tons of stories. And is there any, you know, there's, there's one particular good story, but I would suggest there's probably lots of other great stories. Any come to mind? Oh. Just tons, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where I, do you start? Ev- everyone's a great story. And you think back and think, wow, what I learned from that story, the people who don't talk about death, you can't, you can't say the word palliative. You can't say the word cancer. You can't say the word will because it means I've given up hope. Mm. And so when you're trying to educate these people or communicate with them, it's, it's very difficult. What do you say to people that don't want to let go? To let go? Um, that's, that's their business. Uh, they, they yeah. You know, that... If we want us to continue fighting, well, you don't go into pill, you don't go into a hospice unless you're willing to say, "I don't need any more treatment." Mm-hmm. If you're wanting more treatment, the hospices will say, "Okay, you're not ready for hospice yet," because mm-hmm. hospice means we've reached the end of the active treatment. Definitely, we'll keep you comfortable and we'll give you support, emotional support, and all kind, and give your family emotional support. But we're not actively treating. You're not getting radiation for your right. cancer and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and again, these are great stories, but then I'm sure there's the odd one that isn't so great, uh, maybe a fight uh, over will or last-minute will changes because, as Andy was mentioning, uh, mentioning, are they you know sound body and, and mind to change their will at that time? And maybe there's that short memory at the end of their person's life. They forgot about the last 80 years of how much their daughter had done anything. And all of a sudden, the son throws, comes into the, in the last year of their life. And it's, you know what? He deserves a, a bigger chunk of that money or out of the estate. Yeah, you see things like that happening all the time where family members abuse this, the dying person by taking money right out of their account. Mm. Wow. Well, or 
changing the will so that you're number one on the will. Um, and, you know, I, I can think of within our, our own family, there's, there's an episode of that. And uh, fortunately, the, the third, fourth, and fifth childs were strong enough to stand up to number one child and say, you don't, you don't deserve it. And they went to the lawyers and got it changed. But good, good. you have to be strong to yeah. do that. It's a difficult situation. Mm. And, and again, one of those things nobody really wants to talk about too much, even though we all know that one day we are not going to be around. Mm. And it's, it's funny how it's a taboo subject at times. Yet, would you agree that, you know, if there was better communication, this, all these issues, uh, the, the bad situations would, would have less likely happened? Um, I'm not sure that good communication would necessarily do it. There's an emotional issue. Um, okay. You know, I, I'm the oldest son, therefore I should have. Um, it's an entitlement issue. Um, I'm... You know, everyone's sitting listening right now going, this is my family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it is very common. And, uh, yeah. Mm. Well, what, what advice would you give to people if, they, if you wanted to move a loved one into a hospice? Well, I think they should go and visit the hospice and speak to the hospice staff. I think they should talk to their family doctor. I think they should talk to the community resources that they're using to say, okay, what, how much longer do you think we have? And we're no, not good at predicting. Yeah. But give us the ballpark, and then what are the advantages of each one, and can we do it? Can we do it at home? Because there's a lot of people who want to die in their own bed. Great. Yeah. I was curious, too. Is there, uh, are there conditions that would not lend themselves to hospice? For example, maybe ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, or something that might require a lot of other equipment or, or uh, other um, assistance or, or medical treatments along the way? Uh, we've had uh, ALS patients at the hospice, and uh, they've done very well because the staff is working diligently with the, uh, the family and with the, um, with the client saying, okay, we... You can't communicate with more than blinks of your eye and nods. How do we find out what you really want as opposed to what your family's saying you want? And they worked, the staff are superbly good at working with those ALS patients. Mm. Uh, I've had ALS patients dying at home because the family said, this is what we, we want them to do. Uh, I, you can't get an IV. And you don't get a cardiac resuscitation in a hospice. Um, but if you need oxygen, if you need a... a a breathing device that blows air into your lungs, then they can do that. Mm. So you cannot have an IV at a hospice? No. I, well, at, at the carpenter, I'm not sure if that's a standard at other hospices, but that's considered active treatment, and you've made that decision that no active treatment is uh, being involved. Right. Good to know. Well, it's, uh, it, it's, it's one of those tricky things. Your book here, um, you know, it's a great book, and, and we want to repeat this a couple times. How can they get this book? Uh, I, I have a website uh, that's https colon backslash smile for what you had dot com, and or it's at the Different Drummer Bookstore. Different Drummer in Burlington. Different Drummer okay. in Burlington. Can I ask one more question? Uh, when you are with people who are at this stage of their life and their family is there, so on and so forth. Um, I've heard many friends anecdotally in the past say that they had to say to their parents, you can go. It's, you know, don't worry about us, we'll be fine. 
Is that how important is that? Is that common? I think that's a great conversation to have. I think the first what you have to do with your parents is write your eulogy before they die. Wow. Because once they've they're dead, you're so emotionally charged that you can't think what you'd want to say. Mm. And then once you've written it, if you can share it with that person yeah. and say, "Dad, you were a fantastic guy. You helped me be who I am. This is an important important issue for me." Then dad's going to die and say, hey, maybe I can go now because that's what you thought of me. Mm. I even had one patient, uh, their parent was demented. And they said, well, why would I give them the eulogy? They won't understand a thing. Mm. But she felt better because she'd expressed herself, said, mom, I love you. And this is what was really important. Mm. Good point. Are there, when when a patient is in, in the hospital and they're contemplating moving to a hospice, is it, are the... Are the hospitals resistant? Because it seems like, particularly with younger patients, I'm thinking somebody in their 60s or 70s who maybe by, still by has care. Yeah, yeah, you know, and they're they're trying to intervene. And hospitals, their natural thing is to try and uh, you know cure people <laughs> and bring them yeah. back to life. Yeah, there is a mindset that I can fix everything, and coming that next step where I can't fix it anymore, we go to palliative care. Uh, is is a, is a big shift of men thinking for some people, but the ho- there's good communication between the hospitals and the hospices. They they love to be able to say, okay, let's work together and give the best care for this patient. And it seems to me, I mean, that there's it. It sounds like there's really is not enough beds in hospice. Uh, that's a is, got, it, well, is, it got for, is it for everybody? Hospice for yeah. everybody? No. Mm-hmm. Some people want to die at home, yeah. and uh, that's that's fine too. Some people want to die in hospital. They they feel there's more security there. I don't know what it is, but I think it's very individual for, for each each person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the um, uh, you know obviously from a as I come back to from a financial perspective too, it seems like our hospitals are people lined up in corridors. You know, people are waiting to be admitted, and yet. I'm not sure if everybody is really aware of hospice and, and that options, as an alternative, yeah, yeah. as an option, yeah. uh, because it's it looks like it seems to me like a, an excellent alternative to help people uh, well, with end-of-life decisions. Most hospice, hospitals have beds that are dedicated for palliative care, mm-hmm. so yeah. they're not beds that a cardiac patient would go into particularly. It's a, yeah. it's a dedicated. Yeah. yeah. What a great, that's a great story, and we really appreciate you coming in, that's for sure. All right, joining us is Dr. Graham Swanson, MD. The book is Moments Near Life's End, It's Hard to Say Goodbye. I'm Scott Thompson, along with Andy Lister and uh, Don Fox, Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're going to take a quick break, and we're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165, and don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com andyanddon.com and join today with uh, Dr. Graham Swanson MD the book is Moments Near Life's End it's hard to say goodbye uh, fascinating topic we're going to talk about uh, power of attorney here Graham I know in 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 our world uh, when Don and I are dealing with clients and talking about power of attorney for their finances and power of attorney for their personal care one of the things that I've seen hap- or occurs often in those documents or as people are contemplating the document is uh, is someone actually uh, their competency to either 
create the document, or in some cases, the power of attorney is only springs into action if somebody is deemed incompetent. And I'm just curious, is that problematic? And and I've I'm often thought about that discussion with clients saying, I'm not sure that that's a good solution because when it comes time to test your competency, it, it's it can be very emotional, but it can also be, um, maybe it's it's not that, how accurate can it be? I guess that's the concern. That's a really good question because it's, I remember a lady brought her mother in for a physical and I did the complete <coughs> physical exam and I said, oh, your mom's great. The lady's jaw dropped and said, she doesn't understand anything because I hadn't Mm -hmm. asked her the specific questions about what day is it. Um, Right. Because a lot of people in early dementia can confabulate stories and they sound like they're very with it and you can talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So you do have to have a a set of questions. The mini mental status uh, questionnaire is one. Uh, The Montreal uh, cognitive index is another. And... Most recent studies are suggesting that even those things are not perfect and that getting an idea of how competent somebody is. There is an office of the competency that will will help you if you're really concerned about the the competence of a, of a, a patient. But it, it, you're right, it's a very difficult dish, issue to decide. Um, I see uh, some people make decisions in their life and I'm wondering, are they competent? But they manage to function. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I guess that was always the uh, that's the the concern. If you have people in a family maybe conflicted over the decision process, one saying they're competent and one saying they're not competent, and and now yeah. you end up in a in a bit of a battle. Yeah, we we see that when there's a, a family member out of town who talks to a mom on the phone on the weekend, and they have a great conversation, but the family member who's in town looking after her knows she gets lost when she opens the front door, mm-hmm. and she can't plug in the kettle. She can't do anything else, but she can carry on a great conversation. So the family member from out of town is saying, you can't put mom in a nursing home. She's doing fine. Yes. And the person who's here 24 hours a day can't uh, uh, handle it. So it's really a very difficult situation. Yeah. But it seems to me the power of attorney for personal care is a is obviously an important document because it gives somebody the opportunity to sort of spell out their, their wishes and maybe make that clear to everybody. Um, and Yet, you know, I, I was looking at statistics how many, you know, as people are dying in hospitals, the cost associated with dying in the hospital versus dying in a hospice is dramatically different. And is there, has there been, is there a big shift happening to people dying more likely in a hospice than the hospital? Or what's, what's that situation now in Ontario? Well, the uh, people are dying at home, they're dying at the hospital, they're dying at the, uh, in, in hospices and hospices, uh, the carpenter, for example, in Burlington has 10 beds and they're often full. Right. So you can't put any more people in there because there's no room. Um, but the, uh, Hall, uh, Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Brandt, Lynn mm-hmm. has a really, uh, good webpage that talks about all the different hospices avail- that are available and how you get hold of the community care access people. And we'll provide a lot of advice to people on on how they can access care. And uh, um, and, it's, and it seems like our healthcare, you know, the, the costs in healthcare are constantly under pressure. And, and, you know, whether it's more money from the government or more fundraising, is, is hospice a, a better alternative? Is it a, is it a more economical alternative? 
Uh, hospice is covered by the government, and they do their own fundraising to uh, complete the uh, the staffing complement. They also have a large voluntary uh, staff that works there, and uh, people will donate food. So the the kitchen that's there is always full with all kinds of good goodies and all people right. coming in and volunteering several days a week to cook stuff. And it's always a treat to go to the hospice because you know you're going to get a good snack. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's not, it seems like it's a bit of a challenge for, for those nearing end-of-life decisions trying to actually find a placement. Yeah, I think if you end up in the hospital because that you went to the emergency and they des- decide well, you're now palliative and you're going to die within the next few weeks. Uh, moving somebody from the emergency to the hospice uh, may not be a good idea because it's a rough ride in a transport vehicle. Mm-hmm. Maybe the hospice is full. Uh, so it's got to be a personal decision made at that time. Um, I think if I was uh, on that doorstep, uh, I'd for sure pick a hospice because they are wonderful people there. The wonderful people at the hospital, they're wonderful people in the community. Um, but there's someone there 24 hours a day at the hospice who's really knowledgeable and very uh, uh, compassionate who will help get you through this last stage. And that's that's interesting about the, the cost because, to be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about this side of things. And I didn't know the cost. I actually assumed with the hospice, there was a fee, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a senior center or a nursing home, <laughs> if you will. I thought there was a cost for this, and it is funded by the government, which is great. Um, there's also the one in, in downtown uh, Hamilton, St. Peter's, I believe it is. Yeah, St. Peter's is a hospital. The The hospices we have, there's the Ni- Hospice Niagara in St. Catharines, McNally House in Grimsby, Stedman Hospice in Brantford, Carpenter in Burlington, and Emanuel House in Hamilton. So those are the, but each of them, no one has more than 10 beds. And so that's one of the problems with a hospice is if you've got someone who's going to be there for six months, you've only got right. 20 people in, in a year could use the services. Yeah. So the hospice has a uh, commitment to try and only accept people they think are going to die in the next 90 days. Mm. Um, most people don't last that long, but occasionally you get someone who is there for six months and you ask them to move on to some other kind of uh, accommodation. And actually, one of your stories in the book, which I thought was uh, funny, to be honest, was the miracle. One of them uh, got better. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask you, you were <laughs> just saying someone that's been there for a month and then they've moved on. I mean, that, that was supposed to be the final stage. What happens then? That's, then we I got, guess that's a good thing. Well, well it is, and it isn't. Um, this one, the miracle that Don is talking about, was a gentleman who had congestive heart failure. And the, con- the trajectory for congestive heart failure is up and down. That you're there, you're on death's door, and the right medications and the balance and the care the nurses are giving turn you around. Well, this guy managed to uh, get out, and about a year and a half later, he finally died. But he managed to trip down to Nova Scotia for the Battle of Britain ceremony because he was a war vet. And he <laughs> had a phenomenally good time. And one of the workers from the hospice accompanied him down there. Wow. wow. Great story. <clears throat> well, that's great. And again, you know, you got tons of stories. And is there any, you know, there's, there's one particular good story, but I would suggest there's probably lots of other great stories. Any come to mind? Oh. Just tons, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where I, do you start? Ev- everyone's a great story. And you think back and think, wow, what I learned from that story, the people who don't talk about death, you can't, you can't say the word palliative, you can't say the word cancer, you can't say the word will, because it's 
means I've given up hope. Mm. And so when you're trying to educate these people or communicate with them, it's it's very difficult. What do you say to people that don't want to let go? To let go? Um, that's that's their business. Uh, they, they yeah. you know that if we want us to continue fighting, well, you don't go into pill, you don't go into a hospice unless you're willing to say, I don't need any more treatment. Mm-hmm. If you're wanting more treatment, the hospices will say, okay, you're not ready for hospice yet, because mm-hmm. hospice means we've reached the end of the active treatment, definitely will keep you comfortable and we'll give you support, emotional support, and all ki- give your family emotional support. But we're not actively treating. You're not getting radiation for your right. cancer and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and again, these are great stories, but then I'm sure there's the odd one that isn't so great, uh, maybe a fight uh, over will or last-minute will changes because, as Andy was mentioning, uh, mentioning, are they you know sound body and, and mind to change their will at that time? And maybe there's that short memory at the end of their person's life. They forgot about the last 80 years of how much their daughter had done anything, and all of a sudden the son throws, comes into the, in the last year of their life and says, you know what, he deserves a, a bigger chunk of that money or, out of the estate. Yeah, you see things like that happening all the time where family members abuse this, the dying person by taking money right out of their account. Mm. Wow. Or uh, changing the will so that you're number one on the will. Um, and, you know, I, I can think of within our, our own family, there's, there's an episode of that. And uh, fortunately, the, the third, fourth, and fifth childs were strong enough to stand up to number one child and say, you don't, you don't deserve it. And they went to the lawyers and got it changed. But good, good. you have to be strong to yeah. do that. It's a difficult situation. Mm. And, and again, one of those things nobody really wants to talk about too much, even though we all know that one day we are not going to be around. Mm. And it's, it's funny how it's a taboo subject at times. Yet, would you agree that, you know, if there was better communication, this, all these issues, uh, the, the bad situations would, would have less likely happened? Um, I'm not sure that good communication would necessarily do it. There's an emotional issue. Um, okay. You know, I, I'm the oldest son, therefore I should have. Um, it's an entitlement issue. Um, I'm, you know, everyone's sitting listening right now going, this is my family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it is very common. And uh, yeah. Well, what, what advice would you give to people if they, if you wanted to move a loved one into a hospice? I think they should go and visit the hospice and speak to the hospice staff. I think they should talk to their family doctor. I think they should talk to the community resources that they're using to say, okay, what, how much longer do you think we have? And we're no, not good at predicting. Yeah. But give us a ballpark and then what are the advantages of each one and can we do it? Can we do it at home? Because there's a lot of people who want to die in their own bed. Great. Yeah. I was curious too, is there, uh, are there conditions that would not lend themselves to hospice? For example, maybe ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, or something that might require a lot of other equipment or, or uh, other um, assistance or, or medical treatments along the way? Uh, we've had uh, ALS patients at the hospice, and uh, they've done very well because the staff is working diligently with the, uh, the family and with the, um, with the client saying, okay, we, you can't communicate with more than blinks of your eye and nods. 
how do we find out what you really want as opposed to what your family's saying you want? And they worked, the staff were superbly good at working with those ALS patients. Mm. Uh, I've had ALS patients dying at home because the family said, this is what we, we want them to do. Uh, I, you can't get an IV and you don't get a cardiac resuscitation in a hospice. Um, but if you need oxygen, if you need a, a breathing device that blows air into your lungs, then they can do that. Mm. So you cannot have an IV at a hospice? No. I, well, at, at the carpenter, I'm not sure if that's a standard at other hospices, but that's considered active treatment, and you've made that decision that no active treatment is uh, being involved. Right. Good to know. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those tricky things. Your book here, um, you know, it's a great book, and, and we want to repeat this a couple times. How can they get this book? Uh, I, I have a website uh, that's https colon backslash smileforwhatyouhad.com and or it's at the Different Drummer Bookstore. Different Drummer in Burlington. Different Drummer okay. in Burlington. Can I ask one more question? Uh, when you are with people who are at this stage of their life and their family is there, so on and so forth, um, I've heard many friends anecdotally in the past say that they had to say to their parents, you can go. It's, you know, don't worry about us and we'll be fine. Is that, how important is that? Is that common? I think that's a great conversation to have. I think the first, what you have to do with your parents is write your eulogy before they die. Wow. Because once they've, they're dead, you're so emotionally charged that you can't think what you'd want to say. Mm. And then once you've written it, if you can share it with that person yeah. and say, Dad, you were a fantastic guy. You helped me be who I am. This is an important, important issue for me. Then Dad's going to die and say, hey, maybe I can go now because that's what you thought of me. Mm. I even had one patient, uh, their parent was demented, and they said, well, why would I give them the eulogy? They won't understand a thing, mm. but she felt better yeah. because she'd yeah. expressed herself, said, Mom, I love you, and this is what was really important. Mm. Good point. Are there, when, when a patient is in, in the hospital and they're contemplating moving to a hospice, is it, are, the, are the hospitals resistant? Because it seems like, particularly with younger patients, I'm thinking somebody in their 60s or 70s who maybe by, still by has, care. Yeah, yeah, you know, and they're, they're yeah. trying to intervene and hospitals, their natural thing is to try and, uh, you know, cure people <laughs> and bring them yeah. back to life. Yeah, there is a mindset that I can fix everything and coming that next step where I can't fix it anymore, we go to palliative care. Uh, is is a, is a big shift of men thinking for some people, but the ho- there's good communication between the hospitals and the hospices. They they love to be able to say, okay, let's work together and give the best care for this patient. And it seems to me, I mean, that there's it. It sounds like there's really is not enough beds in hospice. Is it for everybody? Hospice for yeah. everybody? No. Mm-hmm. Some people want to die at home, yeah. and uh, that's that's fine too. Some people want to die in hospital. They they feel there's more security there. I don't know what it is, but I think it's very individual for, for each each person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the um, uh, you know obviously from a as I come back to from a financial perspective too, it seems like our hospitals are people lined up in corridors. You know, people are waiting to be admitted. And yet, 
I'm not sure if everybody is really aware of hospice and, and that options, as an alternative, yeah. Yeah. as an option, yeah. uh, because it's, it looks like it seems to me like a, an excellent alternative to help people uh, well, with end-of-life decisions. Most hospice, hospitals have beds that are dedicated for palliative care, mm-hmm. so yeah. they're not beds that a cardiac patient would go into particularly. It's a, yeah. it's a dedicated. Yeah. yeah. What a great, that's a great story, and we really appreciate you coming in, that's for sure. All right, joining us is Dr. Graham Swanson, MD. The book is Moments Near Life's End, It's Hard to Say Goodbye. I'm Scott Thompson, along with Andy Lister and uh, Don Fox. Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're going to take a quick break, and we're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Andy Lister, and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now, leave a message. 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And of course, don't forget the website, andyanddon.com, andyanddon.com. Graham was incredible. Yeah, what a great, what a great, great information. And I just think, uh, you know, so often families um, end up in a crisis dealing with a lot of these issues. And it's shocking how many financial parts there are to this, as yeah. well as the caregiving parts. And, and how emotionally you guys must get drawn into these families, because this yeah. is an important part of the discussion yeah. as well. We often will get a call saying, um, mom or dad is, uh, has been admitted to the hospital, or mom and dad has been diagnosed, and we're, we're just calling you to know, is there anything we should be doing now? Yeah. And uh, from a financial perspective. And it's a good call to make because often we can look at different strategies and different ideas around planning, financial planning at end of life. Um, Particularly on the tax front, obviously, people want to consider should something that perhaps was um, uh, in single ownership be changed to joint ownership. Mm -hmm. If you have 90 days to live uh, to avoid probate tax, converting something to joint ownership, which triggers capital gains, which is going to happen anyway. Yeah. But you can save the probate by doing that. So often we've been in situations where we're now running out to see a client, meet with the family, uh, and again, coming back to assessing competency to be able Mm. to change their investments, if that's okay still. It's amazing that people want to have that discussion when they know that. You would think that might be the farthest thing thing from their mind, although it shouldn't be. Well, it's often driven right by the client. So, you know, I have a client, you know, he's 90 years old, just as an example, and uh, suddenly something happens to his health and they'll say, call Andy Mm -hmm. or call Don. Yeah. Because maybe there's something uh, he, they, they should know about mm-hmm. or they need, we need to do. Mm-hmm. So joint ownership is one. Making sure that you've maximized uh, tax-free savings account contributions. Yeah. And those are good to get done because they roll over to spouses or they again flow f- without probate tax directly to beneficiaries as well. But just the basics of is the will up to date and is the will reflecting still what your wishes are? Um, is there that living will, that, that power of attorney for personal care in place? Has it been initiated and, uh, and contemplated? Uh, your regular power of attorney now, in case you get to the point where you can't make financial decisions, you need to make sure that somebody else has been given power of attorney for looking after your finances. And of course, the will would have to also contemplate executor, who's going to look after things after your passing, who's going to, uh, and is it going to be one person? Is it going to be several people? Uh, and again, it, 
sometimes we have time to do these things, mm-hmm. and other times it's a crisis right away, and things change so quickly that we yeah. don't have time to do it. Mm-hmm. And statistically, unfortunately, so many people, and less than half of us, actually have valid wills. Yeah, so, so yeah. will is a great place to start. Uh, if there's anything, as I say to people, if you want to set a financial goal for yourself, a short-term goal, or by the end of the year, let's review our will. Let's have it updated. Reviewing when I always ask clients for their wills. I want to know what it is. Has there been any changes? You should talk to your financial planner, bring your wills, bring your power of attorney in, uh, have them review them or reflect back to you. What are they saying? What are these documents actually saying? And is that what you expected? Sometimes we find that people uh, have left out somebody or we find out that um, money was not going to end up going to grandchildren. It was going to be redistributed to other family members. So somebody might get left out. So a lot of times these things, uh, you know, you do a will and it's like, cross that off the list and then you forget about it for 20 years, but life has changed along the way. So it's a good time to do that as well. Are there guardians in case you have minor children? So, so important. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have, you, have you organized that? And just gathering all your financial information and assets together. Now, with, with our clients, we're constantly doing that on an annual basis. Our clients get an update. This is where your financial, uh, this is where you are financially right now as a snapshot. So I always tell people, if anything ever happens to you, uh, make sure that your family members or your executors know where this document is, where your financial plan is, because it lists all of your assets, all of your investments, where they are, the account numbers, all of the details that somebody's going to need to simplify or maybe make changes prior to death and then, of course, after death as well. Um, and then funeral services, right? So how do you contemplate that? Now, you're thinking hospice or you've, uh, you're thinking about end of life. If you haven't already prearranged funeral services, that's something that I think is worthwhile talking about. Uh, you know, mom, dad, do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? What do you visualize? Is it something where we want to have a grand finale or do you want to make it very low key and, and cost effective because that's important to you? So everybody has a different view in terms of what that might look like. Um, and as I say, everybody always worries about probate tax and Don and I are always going to contemplate and look at opportunities to save clients probate tax, but I call that the little tax. Mm -hmm. The big tax, which is the income tax you owe on your final estate, is often the most critical. And again, a good financial planner is going to be addressing these estate questions and looking at how to minimize tax on all fronts. So it's, um, uh, boy, you know, we could specialize. I mean, I could literally have a whole career just dealing with estate planning and uh, and end-of-life decisions around people's finances and then also assisting people after a death because the mountains of paperwork that come into a household to deal with pensions, to deal with life insurance, to deal with health cards, to deal with your air miles card. Like you could just goes on and on and on in terms of all of the little bits and pieces. A lot of unfinished business. There is. And now the whole new area, which is uh, social media. Yeah. People have passwords and password encrypted information. So your social media can often continue Mm. for years after your death. And so being able to bring those down, uh, wipe them clean, clean up all of your social media as well is becoming an important factor. 
We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. And our guest was Dr. Graham Swanson, MD. Moments Near Life's End was the book. And of course, if you want to get a hold of Don and Andy, the website, andyanddon.com. As well, you can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. Great show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Enjoy the day.